And our text is in John chapter 19, verses 1 to 3. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail the king of the Jews. And they struck him in the face. This is the word of the Lord today. And may it open our hearts. May we not avert our eyes, but may we see how innocent suffering becomes transformational and redemptive in our lives and in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Richard Drew is a trained photojournalist. He has been taking photographs since the assassination of Robert Kennedy And he was doing that very thing on the morning of September 11, 2001, when he had his camera and it was trained on the Twin Towers and the smoke that was billowing out from above. But as he was looking through his camera lens, he spotted a man who was falling from one of the towers. And so with his shutter clicking, he followed that man all the way to the ground. And one of those images is here. Journalist Tom Janad writes of this picture. In the picture, the falling man departs from this earth like an arrow. Although he has not chosen his fate, he appears to have, in his last instance of life, embraced it. He appears relaxed, hurtling through the air, comfortable in the grip of unimaginable motion. He does not appear intimidated by gravity's divine suction or by what awaits him. His arms are at his side, his Left leg is bent at the knee almost casually. His white shirt or jacket is billowing free of his black pants. His black high tops are still on his feet. He is perfectly vertical in accord with the lines of the buildings behind him. He splits them, bisects them. Some people who look at the picture see stoicism, willpower, a portrait of resignation. Others see something else, something discordant and therefore terrible, freedom. There is something almost rebellious in the man's posture as though once faced with the inevitability of his death, he decided to get on with it. That picture ran, you can take that down now. That picture ran on the cover of every major newspaper in America on September the 12th, 2001, and it has never been run again since because there was such an outcry over the photograph. They said it robbed the man of his dignity, that it wasn't fair to his family. But ultimately, the reason was that most people said it was just too horrific. It's too destructive. Why? Because he was innocent. He just went to work that morning. He wasn't an international terrorist. He'd never done anything to anyone's knowledge to deserve such a fate. And yet, by the circumstances of that morning, he reached a point where he believed his best choice was to leap. And we don't want to look. We avert our eyes. We have to take our gaze away. Innocent suffering. It's the way I've felt 
in the last few weeks watching all the news media coverage of the Ukraine. Children weeping, mothers exhausted, husbands saying goodbye to their families because they have to stay and defend their country cities being bombed out. People without food, people without water. At a certain point, I'm embarrassed to admit, I have to turn it off. I have to look away because they haven't done anything. They were just living their lives. They didn't deserve to have their country invaded. And yet they're in that space. And so what do we do in this season of Lent with innocent suffering? Because it's one of those questions that penetrates the cozy confines of our carefully constructed lives that are designed to keep out those kinds of questions. But see, that's why in the church, we have a season called Lent because there are particular questions that penetrate the heart. There are particular questions that demand answers. And there are some. And so we come to this sermon series for the next six weeks. We're going to be on a walk to the cross where every Sunday one of us will be taking an event, a moment in the last week of Jesus's life to see what we might glean and learn from it. And this morning we come to a place where Jesus is before Pilate. We confront again innocent suffering. It begins in John 18, 38, when Pilate has asked Jesus a series of questions. And finally it says, and a quote from Pilate, he says, I find no basis for a charge against him. So not only was there no basis to kill him, there wasn't any basis to even try him. There wasn't anything to even charge him with. There's nothing. And yet chapter 19, verse one says, Pilate took Jesus out and had him flogged. And you go, wait, that can't possibly be right. The Bible just said, there's nothing to charge him with. You just told us, He hadn't done anything. And yet Pilate still takes him out and he has him flogged. And then we read in the other gospels that he was whipped and the flesh removed from his back and a robe put on his back and a crown of thorns crushed into his skull. And then they punched him in the face. And again, we we don't want to look. We need to avert our eyes, but what do we do, friends, with innocent suffering? He's just been declared an innocent man, and yet this is where he is. And how we answer, what we do with innocent suffering in this scenario, all depends on what we believe to be true about Jesus. Who is this man? You may recall when Mel Gibson made The Passion of the Christ, and there was a big uproar about all the violence in that movie, and did it have to be so gory? Why the necessity for violence? And Mel Gibson was interviewed by Diane Sawyer and she kept asking him these questions and he prefaced every comment by saying, well, Diane, I believe. I believe everything that he did and the reasons why he did it in the creation of that film were all based on what he believed to be true about the man Jesus, the God man Jesus. And perhaps in a more 
soft manner. At the National Prayer Breakfast several years ago, a 10-year-old girl named Ashley Oubre stood before the great and the mighty and the powerful in a packed Hilton ballroom, and she said this, I don't have experience in most areas, but I have a lot of it in terms of being a child. You have to be a child in order to have faith in God. The Bible tells us that. But here's what I don't get. I think you tell us Bible stories because we're children. You don't tell each other Bible stories, though. Are they only good for children? You teach us that when we have a problem, we should talk it out with others and with Jesus. You say that we should pray about it and keep our hearts right for Jesus. You say that Jesus can solve all our problems, big and small. But we notice when people get older and have problems, they're embarrassed to talk like that among themselves. We wonder if you really mean it. Or is Jesus only for kids? I'm still young enough to believe that Jesus knows how to solve my problems, the problems of this city and of the world. I hope I never grow old enough to stop believing and that you all become like children in search of God's truth. It is interesting, isn't it? It's so important for many of us to be sure our children know Jesus. When I was in student ministry, I always used to chuckle at the parents who would drop their kids off for youth ministry or Sunday school and never stay for church. Like that was gonna do any good. The kids obviously looking at their parents going, well, obviously this doesn't matter to them. It's why we have your kids in worship. They might not understand everything, but they're here because I want them to see you. I want them to see that you value worship. I want them to see that you love Jesus and that this matters to you. Because at the end of the day, what we believe to be true about Jesus is what determines and defines everything else about our lives, including human suffering. And if you wanna know who Jesus is, you have to back up and understand first, what is our theology of sin? What is it that demanded the death of Jesus? You back up to, well, is there anything wrong in the world? And I think all we have to do is look around and we can accept the fact that something has gone terribly, horribly wrong in the world. That there is something deeply wrong with the world. It goes back to Genesis 3 when the serpent tempts Adam and even says, hey, if you eat this fruit, you too can be like God. And ultimately that's the root of sin is that we all want that. We don't wanna do what somebody else wants us to do. We don't wanna obey somebody else's dictates or commands or laws. We wanna do what we wanna do. We wanna be our own God. And you see that in spades in our culture today because everybody demands their personal freedom. I'm free to do what I want, when I want. And you hear the culture pronounce, if they have a view of God, if they have an understanding of God, it's that God is love. And God is inclusive of everybody. Everybody just come on in. But you have to follow where that leads intellectually. You wanna say, oh, God loves us no matter who we are. God loves us no matter what we do. Everybody just come on in. Well, at what point does that stop? Are you gonna let the liar, everybody, everybody's welcome, including the liars. You've lied, absolutely. Are you gonna let in the greedy? We're gonna be inclusive, all the greedy, yes. What about the adulterers? Mm. We might have to think about that. What about the thieves? Well, what'd they take? 
What about murderers? Violent offenders. We're gonna let them in? You have to, you can't just say, oh, God welcomes it because at a certain point, you're not gonna let some people in, which tells us what? There's right and wrong. And that if there's a wrong, the wrong has to be punished, which is all part of this larger word called justice. Because here's the problem with where the culture is. They can say, oh, God loves us. And he just, oh, he wants everybody to come in. And what you do doesn't matter. Well, if it doesn't matter, then there's no such thing as right and wrong. And if there's no such thing as right and wrong, then nothing matters. And everything you believe to be true about the world crumbles. You want a God who's just. You want a God that answers sin. You want a God who's gonna look at the wrong things because everybody in our guts knows that there are things that are wrong. And what does wrong demand? Wrong demands some kind of punishment, some kind of answer. And so no, it's, it's pleasant psychologically. You say, oh, God just loves us no matter what we do, come on in. But at the end of the day, you actually don't want that because that means all the injustice of the world, all the wrong of the world, it never gets answered. So who's guilty? Who's the guilty party? Who are the ones that deserve punishment? Me. You, we're the guilty ones. But here's where it gets really cool. God does this amazing thing. He says, you know, there's right in the world and there's wrong and I'm the standard, the holiness of God. But here's what I'm gonna do. Leviticus 17, 11, he initiates this. He says, the life of a creature is in the blood and I've given the creature to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It's the blood that makes atonement for one's life. So God does this great thing. He creates a substitutionary system. And he says, yes, something's gone terribly wrong. The guilty party is you. What the, the punishment for the wrong that you've done, because we all know that wrong needs to be punished at some level. And so the punishment is death. But here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna take an innocent animal. Animal hadn't done anything to you. Animal hadn't done anything wrong. Animal's just being an animal. But he says, I'm gonna shed the blood of that animal because the life of the creature was said to be in the blood. And I'm gonna take the life of that animal and that will serve, instead of you being punished, I'm gonna punish the animal. And that's how we're gonna stay in relationship. And so all through the Old Testament, God allows for a substitutionary system of atoning for what's wrong. But what do we know that that's actually telling us? It prefigures and points us to ultimately what Christ would do. That there weren't enough animals in the world to be sacrificed for the sins of humanity. There had to be one perfect unblemished lamb. A lamb is the symbol of the purest of the animal world. And so Jesus becomes the lamb of God, Isaiah 53, three. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. 
He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. 500 years before Jesus ever shows up on the scene, God tells us this is how it's gonna work. There's gonna be a man, a suffering servant, the God man, the Messiah, and he is going to come. And there's gonna be absolutely nothing beautiful or attractive about him. How come? because he got our ugliness and we got his beauty. He got our ashes, which is why we have an Ash Wednesday service. He got our ashes and we got the crown of righteousness. It's substitutionary atonement. And all of a sudden we realize innocent suffering is for a reason. Innocent suffering has a purpose, that there's never suffering for the sake of suffering, but God is always gonna take suffering and he's going to use it in a grander, larger, redemptive way. And one of the things that we learn, if indeed Jesus innocently suffered for the redemption and the forgiveness of our lives, it blows apart one of the things the world says about Jesus that they get wrong. They say, oh, Jesus, he was a good man. He was a wise and loving teacher. He might've been those things, but he wasn't only those things because guess what? Wise, loving teachers don't get killed. Wise, loving teachers get raised to iconic status like Gandhi and Buddha. But Jesus said far more than just wise, loving things. He's either the son of God or as C.S. Lewis says, a nutcase on a par with a poached egg. Either his suffering was for a redemptive purpose in our lives or you and I are all fools for being here. And so what we learn in the suffering of Jesus, the innocent suffering of Jesus, is that suffering is not a sentence, it's a season. Suffering is not a sentence, it's a season. Suffering or circumstances of any kind do not dictate your standing before God. Do not ever make the assumption that when things are going good, God must love me because I'm behaving so well. And when things are bad, God must be displeased because I'm being particularly sinful. That is not why God acts in your life. But God does allow suffering for particular seasons because we learn things. Number one, we learn that God never wastes our pain, that God uses suffering redemptively in our lives. Always, Jesus said, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. But God doesn't take the cup, why? Because God had a purpose in his suffering. God had a purpose in his death to redeem us, which is why Paul can then say in Romans 8, 28, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. You know this as much as I do, that if all you and I ever experienced in life was joy and happiness, we would be cold, shallow, heartless people who lacked empathy in every way. It's only in the suffering and the hardships of our lives that God molds and shapes and moves and redeems. So we need to understand by looking at the innocent suffering of Jesus that suffering is always purposeful. But then number two, we learn that our suffering are part of a plan of God that we may or may not understand. As we just sang, even when my eyes can't see, right? Even when we can't see, 
we still believe. Isaiah 55 says, my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts, your thoughts. God functions in our lives in ways that we're not gonna understand. So what happens to you in life is not always gonna make sense. But what we tend to do in our human depravity is we reach up into heaven and we pull God right down to our level. And we say, God, because I can't come up with a good reason for why I'm suffering, there must not be one, so you're messing up. You shouldn't be allowing this. And what we're saying in that is, God, you are no smarter than me. God, you're not any wiser than I am. We've pulled God down to an equal level. Don't you think if we worship an infinite God that there may be plans and purposes that you and I are not privy to? That our task is to understand that God is with us in the suffering, which is the third thing that we learn. We learn that God identifies with us, that we worship a God with tears. God has never promised us. And this is where we have to be careful. You can't hold God to promises he's never made. We try to make ourselves believe, well, if I follow God and I'm obedient, I go to church and he'll keep bad things from happening to me. That's not in there. But what he says is, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And Jesus, by his innocent suffering, has endured more pain and suffering than any of us can ever imagine. Because when he cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The sin of all of us was on him. So he suffered more than any of us ever will. And that's the God who is with us. And in John eleven thirty five. 35, when he comes upon Mary and Martha and Lazarus has died, what does he do? He weeps. You ever been in a situation like that before where you're hurting and you sit down to talk to a friend and maybe you're crying, maybe you're not, but when you look across the table into their eyes and you see tears, you ever had that happen where you see someone weeping for you? someone who's so identified with your hurt that it draws tears from their eyes. What does that do to you? It's not happened to me, but twice that I can remember and it binds me to that person. I have such a deep sense of understanding and affirmation that someone would love me to the end, that they would weep with what makes me weep. That's the God that we worship. Whatever it is that you suffer today, he sees and he knows. And when you weep, he does as well. And then finally, it teaches us dependence in an independent world. We're taught and trained so much to depend on self, to be self-sufficient. And that's part of the whole cry for personal freedom. I should be allowed to do what I want when I want because I am my own God. We believe we can save ourselves. And yet Paul writes, in 2 Corinthians 1.8, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. And once again, that verse that you think is in the Bible, that God will never allow anything to happen that I won't be able to endure. Yeah, that ain't in there. Because the opposite is true. If God never allowed you to have more than you could handle, why would you ever need him, right? So God will allow suffering in your life because that's when you get to the end of your strength. 
and you throw up your hands and you go, God, I, I don't know what to do anymore. And that's when God moves into your life in ways that otherwise he never would because you and your suffering have surrendered. Suffering teaches you how to depend in a world that only preaches independence. And so Paul in Romans 8, 18 said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. How can he say that? That my present sufferings, hard though they may be, they can't even compare to the glory that's going to be revealed in and through us and through Christ's church. Answer, innocent suffering, redemptive suffering. God never wastes your pain. I'll tell you that picture, hard as it is to look at. And I know I was walking a fine line but that picture is permanently etched in my mind. And the reason is because not only of the contents, but as you might imagine on September 12 and in the weeks that followed, everybody and their brother tried to figure out who that was. They tried to identify the falling man. Peter Cheney of the Toronto Globe and Mail was assigned the task by his editor. He worked on it for six months looking at every possible detail, enlarging the photograph, as you can imagine. And you know what? No one has ever been able to definitively say who that is. And I find that to be poetic because I actually know who it is. It's me. And it's you. And we've all made that leap from the fires of sin, trying to find someone or something that can save us. And friends, the hope of the gospel is when you make that leap, you fall into the nail-scarred hand and the bleeding arms of a God who took your place, of a God who became human and suffered for no reason other than love so that what was wrong with the world would one day be made right. And it all goes back to this table and to this moment. Substitutionary atonement, innocent suffering for the reconciliation of our lives. Yes, there's something wrong, with you, with our world, with all of us. But I pray today that we might each one leap into the arms of Jesus. Let's pray. 